You noticed I mentioned uh, that we're having a family gathering meeting after the conclusion of our service. I love the word family, because you know what? We are a family. Uh, And this morning, our guest speaker, our guest preacher is family. Um, Pastor Barry Goodson and his lovely wife, Mary Ellen, uh, have been part of this church really for 41 years. When you look at some of the people who really made this church what it is, uh, the Goodsons are right up there. Uh, Mary Ellen uh, actually was one of the ones who really started the school. She's still working at the school. Her daughter teaches at the school. They're family. And we're delighted to have family back with us. So it's really my pleasure to introduce to you and welcome back uh, Pastor Barry Goodson. Let's give him a hand. It is certainly great to be back. I've said before that this church is my home church. If home is where you feel most welcome, Absolutely. This is my home church and always will be. Probably the most famous words that A.W. Tozer wrote are these. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I would, as a corollary, I would say it this way. What comes into our minds when we think about God should be the most important thing to us. Because as you pray, as you lead your Christian life, As you just go about day by day, your concept of God, your understanding of who he is, of what he does, does he love you, does he forgive, is he compassionate, or is he more like a a brick wall that your prayers can't get beyond, however you conceive of God, that really dictates how you live your life. In line with that, do you realize you are a theologian? Theologian is someone who studies about the nature and actions of God and and reaches some conclusions about it. Every one of you has done that and are constantly doing that. You come here, you sing songs of praise, you read the Bible talk to other believers, you pray, all of that helps factor in to your concept and your understanding of who God is. Today we're going to look at a passage that's very familiar to us. It's going to be in Mark chapter 4. But before you turn there, I would invite you to turn first to Mark chapter 1, very first verse in the book. What we're going to look at today is one of the times that the disciples were caught in a storm. Probably the other occasion of this is better known, 
when Jesus came to them walking on water. But this one is full of excitement and suspense just as much as that later one is. Mark 1, 1 says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel is a message of good news. And it's of Jesus Christ or about him, concerning him, with regard to him, Jesus Christ. Christ is the New Testament word that translates the Old Testament word Messiah, anointed one. An anointed one wasn't somebody who just had oil on their head. An anointed person was one who was designated as like the top representative. And that's the role, one of the roles Jesus filled was representing God to mankind. So the content of that good news is absolutely centered nowhere else than on the person of Jesus Christ, including his actions and his teachings. <clears throat> before we get to chapter 4, or before chapter 4 starts, previously in that gospel, Jesus has been healing people. He's been preaching the good news about the kingdom been casting out demons, and now we get to chapter 4, and the reason he's doing all of that is that in the first half or so of Mark, Jesus is establishing who he is, specifically the Messiah, as Mark starts his gospel, the Messiah or the Christ, and also the Son of God, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, who came down to earth took on a human body, and is now representing people, excuse me, now representing God to people. So as we get up to chapter 4, though, we find that while a lot of people have appreciated what he had to say, they're intrigued, they're interested and curious, there's a group of people who are not so happy, and that is the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. Sadducees and the scribes, they composed the leadership of the Jewish faith at that time. They were none too pleased with what Jesus was saying. And in fact, one time they saw him cast out a demon from a person and they said, well, so what? He must be in league with Satan. That's the only way that he could be doing that kind of thing which is ultimately a statement of blasphemy, isn't it? To attribute to, to the devil works that God himself is doing, you can't get worse than that. On the day we're about to look at, not only has that happened, his family, some of his family have come and tried to take him back home. They're embarrassed, <coughs> They're embarrassed by some of the things he says. They're embarrassed by his actions. They just want him to kind of, hey, Jesus, come over here. Let, let's go back home and, and maybe people will stop thinking you're so crazy. 
even his own family didn't recognize him, who he really was, to begin with. <clears throat> that kind of reception by his family, by the Jewish leaders, not the kind of reception you think the Son of God would get, is it? But that is what he got. And so at the beginning of chapter 4 in Mark, Jesus says, these people don't want to hear what I have to say. I have a lot more to say. So I'm going to begin saying some of it in parables, in stories that to us probably seem kind of easy to understand. But at the time, the Jewish leaders especially did not get it. They were pretty flummoxed by what he had to say. <clears throat> Jesus will, in chapter four, to ah, in chapter four, Jesus will tell four parables, and following those, he will perform four miracles, which takes us through chapter five. Chapter four at the end, what we're going to be looking at. The disciples are trying, and Jesus are trying to cross the Sea of Galilee. And they run into a storm. What I want to do today as a result of this is I want to give you some principles to help us, you and all of us, understand a little bit better about storms we may encounter in life. Not just may, storms we do encounter from time to time. And if, along with that, have you ever realized that not only are you a theologian in a broad sense, you're also a theologian in a more narrow sense. Every one of us has what we can call a storm theology. That is a storm type of, a type of understanding about God as to how he acts when we encounter storms. When we are comfortable and easy and life is going great, we may say these kind of things about Jesus, about God. Once we're in the middle of a storm, though, do we still believe the kind of things we sang? Or do we more so move into panic? <clears throat> Your storm theology will reveal what you really believe about God when some of the worst things in, hap in life happen to us. <clears throat> Do you, for example, remind yourself that God loves you, that he has done great things, that he will do great things? Do you believe his compassion is great, that's new every morning, that his faithfulness Truth to who he is and what he said he will do. His faithfulness is great. Never comes to an end. You know, we can all sing those when we're, when we're kind of riding in the parade, so to speak, of the Christian life. Everything's going grandly. When our life is scared, when our, our composure is, is attacked by circumstances... It's not always so easy to, to remember some of those things. So Mark chapter 4, I'd like to read, read it to you from the Pew Bible. I'd like to read it to you from the Pew Bible, 
but I haven't found a telescope around here, so I'm going to read it from my own notes. Mark 4, beginning with verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He awoke, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now that's what the disciples are saying here at the end of Mark 4. Who is this guy? They have been with Jesus more than anyone else up to this point. They, if anyone knows or should know who he is, it's the disciples. But they are just stunned by his ability and are asking amongst each other, who can control the wind and the sea? Going back to verse 35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. They're on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. They're going to be going southeast about 12, 13 miles, depending on exactly where they would land. They're going to be landing consequently on the east side. On the west side, where they were coming from, is, is primarily Jewish. And the top, you might say, county or area is Galilee, and the middle is Samaria, and the lower part is Judea. But when you go to the east side of the Sea of Galilee and of the Jordan River, those are Gentile areas. Those are areas that, that you would think would not have very much knowledge of Jesus would not be very receptive to him. So you wonder, why would he want to go there? He doesn't tell them why. He just says, let's do it. So verse, oh, one other thing. The area that they are going to is called the Decapolis or Decapolis. Deca for 10, polis city or town. So then in English, we pronounce it Decapolis, a very <clears throat> Gentile area, area that perhaps he have not even heard about Jesus. So verse 36, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. 
being just as he was means he didn't get to go back to land to, or he was on land, didn't really get to go grab a bite to eat, didn't, in our day and age, we'd say, didn't get a chance to shower, change clothes. They just took him. He was seated teaching the people. Now, all he had to do pretty much is turn around or do a 180. The disciples get in the boat. They start rowing across. <clears throat> and it says other boats were with him. Interesting little factoid that we're not sure why it's included. Because they're not mentioned ever again. So no need to really speculate about that. But there, apparently these other boats were also trying to cross because they were carrying people who wanted to continue to follow and listen to him. Once they're in the middle of the boat, excuse me, middle of the sea somewhere, what happens? But a storm arises. These guys are, at least four of them, are professional fishermen. They run into storms potentially every day. Now, they're not in a fishing boat that would have taller walls, a hull. Instead, they're in a much smaller boat. And yet, it should be the kind of boat that could safely cross the Sea of Galilee, even if it encounters a storm. I mean, they're not dumb. They wouldn't be taking a boat that they know would would swamp and, and sink. So, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> says that there's no time frame given as to how long it was that they were in the Sea of Galilee before the storm came. It, the, all we're told is that a storm arose. And you know, when we live our lives, that's kind of how trials do also, don't they? They just seem to arise kind of out of nowhere. I would really like it if somebody could give me a, like a 10-minute heads up before difficulty starts. But they never have. <clears throat> Again, this is, just seems to be the nature of trial. They come up apparently out of nowhere. You're driving along, boom, flat tire. Or... You bust a radiator hose. You're working and a mad customer comes up and demands to speak to you. Perhaps an email arises from someone you haven't spoken to in a long time and, and they begin lambasting you about something they heard that you said or did or didn't say or didn't do. You get a call from the school. Your child has a fever. Come immediately. The boss may be fussing at you, <clears throat> alleging that you didn't do something that you weren't even assigned to do. Trials, as we all know, come all the time. We don't, we can't foresee them most of the time. But since they will come, I want to suggest that storms and trials will come and therefore expect them. Expect them. I'm not saying go through life being a, a depressed person, but be anticipating that they're going to be coming. In fact, it might be good if we woke up in, in the morning and said, Lord, I present myself to you as a living sacrifice today. 
I know difficulties are going to come, so don't let me down. Let me see them. Well, maybe we wouldn't pray that, but we could pray, I know difficulties are coming, so Lord, help me here in advance to deal with them the way you want me to. Why do we have so many difficulties? There's various reasons, but one thing is because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that has fell into sin as described back in Genesis 3. And ever since then, God told women that their pain in childbirth would increase. He told Adam that now to be able to eat, you're going to have to work with the sweat of your brow. It's going to be thorns. It's going to be thistles getting in your way. It's going to be difficult just to do the day-to-day things. What God was in essence saying is difficulties are there and they will not ultimately be removed until he removes them. So we need to learn to live with them, even to anticipate them. We all know what James chapter 1 verses 2, 3, and 4 say. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, excuse me, when you meet trials, of various kinds. He didn't say count it all joy if you happen to encounter a trial once every two or three years. No, he said count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And why can we count it joy? Because we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, patience, long-suffering, and let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Nothing. Jesus wants us to develop steadfastness, long-suffering. But the way to develop long-suffering is to suffer long and learn to handle it the right way. I don't want to suffer long. I don't want to suffer shortly. I don't want to suffer at all. You know, when it comes to those verses, I think most of us have mastered half of verse 2. We meet various trials. We're pretty good at encountering trials. But the other half of the verse, count it all joy when you encounter trials. That we're not too good at. At least I know I'm not. So verse 37, let's move to that. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. By the way, not against the boat, but over the hulls, into the boat, so that the boat was already filling with water. But he was asleep in the he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And we may not want to admit to anyone else that we may not say those words, but frankly, we do. We do think think those words at times, don't we? God, do you care what's going on? Because it seems to me, if you really cared, you'd be doing something about this. What am I to conclude? God, is it that you don't really care so much? Or or what? 
Great windstorms can suddenly arise on the Sea of Galilee. It's about 13 miles north-south and about 7 or 8 miles wide. And it's in a very low area, like 600 feet below sea level. What surrounds the Sea of Galilee are some mountains 3,000 feet high. And so, as you know, weather, the cold from the mountain air, the cold air from the mountains wants to fall. The heated air above the Sea of Galilee wants to rise. And when hot meets cold, kaboom, there are storms. <clears throat> Again, though, I want to say that they took a boat that they had to be sure certain would be able to cross the, the Sea of Galilee, even if, even if a storm had come. So what I think is occurring here, it's not said clearly, but what I think is happening is that this is a much bigger storm than ordinary. Again, they would not have taken a boat that would easily swamp in, in a storm. This storm must be kind of the storm of all storms, a storm on steroids, and yet they're out much too far from land to swim back. So what can they conclude? The only thing they can conclude is either God doesn't care or, or maybe he can't really do anything about this. Storms will come, therefore we should expect them. Storms usually arise suddenly and surprisingly. Therefore, we shouldn't lose our patience, our composure, and our peace when they do show up. But another idea is storms can cause us to doubt God. Therefore, I'll go ahead and give you the recommendation before we look at it. I recommend that we take God's word in on a daily basis. Faith comes what? By hearing. By hearing the word of God. Now back then that's, they had to hear because the average person didn't have their own Bible. Now we certainly can hear. We can listen to messages on the radio or or not radio anymore, podcasts, or, but we need to take it in. We, need, we should take it in about as often, I think, as storms will arise, which is pretty much every day. If we are going to confront our storms with faith, then we need a faith that is ready to confront our storms. We need a strong faith. Faith is is not a static uh, substance, if you will. It's always either increasing or decreasing. You read God's word, you sing his praises, your faith will increase. You neglect God, kind of fall into some old sins, do your own thing, your faith will plummet. You will not handle trials in the right way. <clears throat> Storms can also teach us about God. By the way, they teach us a lot about ourselves as well, but storms can teach us about God. So I recommend 
We need to be open, always open to learning about God. Maybe we're going to see God provide just as he has done in the past. Maybe we're going to see God work in a way that he never has before. Or it's also possible that God is going to apparently, as appears to us, do little or nothing. We need to be ready to, to, uh, to handle whatever, however he chooses to act and not develop an attitude toward him because he isn't doing things the way we want. It's interesting in verse 39, he awoke, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And what happened? The wind ceased and there was a great calm. It's interesting that he says separate things or different things to the wind as opposed to the waves. He rebuked the winds. We're not told exactly what words he used there. But then to the waves, to the sea, he said, peace, be still. In fact, the verb there could also be translated, be muzzled. A nice way of saying, stop it, be quiet, and do as I tell you. Jesus, is, his actions are described by three verbs there. He got up, he rebuked the wind, and he said or spoke to the waves. What was the result? You go in verse, from verse 37, a great windstorm, to what do we see at the end of verse 39? A great calm. By the way, the ESV and many of the more liberal, literal, not liberal, literal translations will, when at all possible, show us that a word from one verse is also being is also the same word used later on by translating them the same way. And therefore we have in verse 37 the word great, describing the windstorm. Whereas in verse 39, after Jesus speaks to it, a great calm. Mark would want us, as we read this, to, to pick up on that um, repetition, to realize what had looked like the worst was now about the best. Now, what they would have known is something we probably do not, we would not pick up on right away, and that is the disciples, any obedient, serious Jew, would know that God, as described in various places in the Old Testament, that God controls the winds and the waves. You can think back to the Exodus and how God controlled the waters there, how it caused a big wind to pull the, and hold the sides of the water back. Another verse I won't read, but I'll just give you as a reference, is Psalm 106, verse 9. Well, the Jews knew their Bible, what we call the Old Testament, much, much, much better than we know our Bible. I'm not fussing at you, I'm just stating the fact. They lived their faith 24-7. Their, their government was based on their faith their penalties they took from the Old Testament. 
to them, their faith was not a thing. It was the only thing. So they knew that the Bible spoke in various places about the fact that God, not simply wind, but that God controls the waters and the winds. Ladies and gentlemen, storms will test and stretch your faith. Therefore, we should welcome them because they can help us to become more like Christ. They will test us. They will stretch us. They many times will drive us to our knees in prayer. They may drive us to understand God's character better by looking through his word. Jesus gives a kind of nice or maybe not so nice rebuke to the disciples in verse 40. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? By asking why they're afraid, and if they have no faith, what he wants them to realize, at least in that particular situation, was Jesus, remember, Jesus told them, let's get in a boat and go to the other side. Jesus would not say, let's go to the other side if they weren't going to get there. They have the Messiah, the very Son of God, right there in their boat. But somehow they're not putting two and two together. And so he asked them, do you not have faith? Do you not understand I can control this? <clears throat> do you still have no faith? Faith is dependent on comprehension, on knowledge. That's where they were stuck. They just didn't seem to put various pieces together. And by the way, most people think that the Apostle Peter is the one who helped Mark write his gospel, the main person that Mark would have interviewed. So Peter was right there, had been there in that boat. He knew, of all people, that the disciples were slow to catch on, and he didn't mind saying that, that Mark could write it down, because it was simply true. Verse 41, they were filled with great faith and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? <clears throat> says the disciples were excuse me, were terrified or that they were filled with a great fear. There's that word great again. They were filled with a great fear. Now, they're not afraid of the storm. Jesus has already stopped it. They're not afraid of the winds. Again, Jesus has stopped those. They now are afraid of the man within arm's length of them. Who is this person and how does he have so much power? It just, when people encounter God's power in the Bible, they normally shrink back with fear. That's why I, I really don't like watching some of the preachers on TV, some of the name it and claim it people say they encountered Christ, they had a vision of him, he's six foot four and blue eyes, blonde hair, blah, blah, blah. If you see God or the Son of God and you don't fall down on your knees, then you haven't seen 
Jesus. You've seen something your mind made up, but you have not seen the real, you have not come into an encounter with the real Lord. <clears throat> For these guys, it's going to take them in the Gospel of Mark. It's going to take them till right at the end of chapter 8 before they finally piece it together. I'm not sure they all, even at that point, had pieced it together. Peter, Jesus does ask them, who do people say that I am? And finally, for the first time, Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. But Peter still didn't really get it because what you'll see next is that Jesus right away began to teach them that he had to go to Jerusalem and die, be put to death, and three days later would rise from the dead. And what does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. He said, not so, Lord. Don't, that's not going to happen to you. You have too much power. You have too much authority. And what does Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. Yeah, he says, Peter, you are saying the kind of things Satan would whisper into my ear. You are not really on board with who I am and what I'm about to do. <clears throat> Still on this idea of te storms testing our faith, stretching our faith, I also want to say this. It, at the end of that story, we can all say, well, well, that's all good, and everybody lived happily ever after. But in real life, it's not that way, is it? In life, much of the time, perhaps most of the time, God does not perform a miracle in our situation. Why? Again, that's a huge issue. But I think one thing we need to really take into account is we do live in a fallen world, as I said before. We live in a world that's full of sin, that rejects God, does not want to even take God into account. There are problems everywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, Christians are not immune from those problems. Christians' cars break down. People who aren't Christians, their cars break down. We have all the same issues and problems that the rest of the world has. We get sick. They get sick. We get COVID, cancer. We have heart problems. You can you know, just go down the line. And God has not promised that he will keep us from, from getting these diseases or conditions. And he's not promised that if you get it, he will heal you from it. He simply hasn't. And again, part of the reason is I think he wants to just wait to the end to mop things up. And that if he went, if he healed Christians today every single time, then A, we would become a lot more loose in our living. You know, we wouldn't care. Hey, bring on the gravy. I, it doesn't matter. God's going to heal me anyway. <clears throat> I think God is not you know, wanting us to indulge in things like that. But also, how could an unbeliever relate to us and how we encounter a trial, how we hold on to our faith, 
if we don't encounter trials that test our faith. No, Christians get everything the rest of the world gets. And to make it even worse news, Christians suffer at the hand of cruel people, just as the rest of the world does. God has some of you in place where your, your boss is, well, not nice, not kind, who loves to throw out the blame. <clears throat> we have people who lie to us, treat us unfairly. We pay for one thing, sometimes are sent something else. All of our trials are the same ones that the world encounters, everybody else in life encounters. And we, where we are different, where we should be different is in how we handle those things. I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 27. And I want to read... I want to read about a time where God did not come through for Paul. Paul, the apostle, the top, probably the top apostle at the time. If anybody is in God's favor, it's the apostle Paul. If anybody has faith, it's Paul. If it seems God wanted to reward or make life a little easier for anyone, wouldn't it be Paul? In Acts 27, Paul is a prisoner. They're trying to transport him from Israel across the Mediterranean, ultimately to Rome in Italy. <clears throat> I'm going to read most of this, but not all of it. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion, to, to a jail guard of the Augustan cohort, named Julius, and embarking on a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, that is Turkey, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. <clears throat> the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, gave him leave to go see his friends and to be cared for. Then putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were what? The winds were against us. Wait, this is God's number one apostle and God isn't seeming to intervene and make life any easier for him. When we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, in Lycia, there the centurion, the guy in charge of the prisoners, he found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy. It was hauling grain, so he put us on board of that. We sailed slowly a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Canidus. And the wind did not allow us to go farther. So we sailed under the lee of Crete, off Salmone, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which was by the city of Lucene. 
Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast, that is the Yom Kippur fast, the Day of Atonement, because that fast was already over, which by the way, the Day of Atonement would normally in this area mark about the end of safe, safe seafaring for the winter for the next three or four months or so. Nevertheless, that deadline passed. They're still out to sea. And Paul advised them, verse 10, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter there, the majority of people decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, not in Arizona. Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. 13, now when the south wind blew gently Supposing they had obtained their purpose, that the weather was going to be in their favor, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. <clears throat> when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it, just kind of gave up, and were driven along by wherever the wind was going to blow them. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And that would be a much smaller boat that they could get in and, and ultimately get ashore in. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. The owner of the ship had been had wanted his cargo, his grain, to make it to Italy. Not going to happen. These guys are having to throw things overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. And no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. I'll skip just a little bit that Paul then speaks to them again in verse 23. He says, This very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Paul says, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as we've been told. But we must run aground on some island. Who wants to run aground on some island? When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected they were nearing land, so they sent out some soundings. Verse 29, fearing that we might run into rocks, they let down four acres 
from the back of the boat and prayed for day to come. They were trying to get their ship to, to stop, to hold fast, but the wind was just so strong. Verse 30, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So then soldiers cut away the ropes of that small boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense, in agony, without food, having taken nothing. 14 days without food. How many of us would not have said probably a million times, Lord, what are you doing? Lord, 14 days now without food? You know, people, some people like to have a life verse. I don't know anyone who would choose this verse to be their life verse. Today is the 14th day you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. So I urge you to take food, and I'll just stop there. But the ship is going to eventually shipwreck, and they're going to lose everything except the lives of the sailors and the prisoners. So guys, sometimes God comes through in wonderful, powerful ways, and we rejoice at those times, but sometimes he really stretches our faith by, by apparently not making any difference in our circumstances. He needs to have, we need to make sure we do a lot to him, the right to do that, to act as he wants, and without Losing our composure and peace. Let's pray. Father, we don't really love trials. We don't like trials. But they're part of life. So we ask that you would help us encounter them and deal with them the way you want. In a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name we pray. <clears throat> Amen. You are dismissed.